And welcome to the socialworldpodcast.com. Your host is Dave Niven. Today's show is sponsored by David Niven Associates. Hello and welcome to the Social World Podcast. I'm Dave Niven and I'm very pleased to have your company. Now, this week we're going to focus on the fourth of the conference podcasts from the Joint Social Work Education Conference. Um, and of course, you can download it from iTunes. Just go to uh, iTunes Store and Podcasts, or you can get Podfeed or Stitcher, or of course, go to our website and uh, listen to it there. My thanks, as always, to Alba Digital Media for making this possible. And uh, I do assure you, we've got a packed program this week. The first interviews I'm going to be doing are three people Claire, Claire Parkinson, Lucille Allen and Helen Hingley-Jones, who presented uh, a session, a paper and a session, exploring contemporary uses of baby and young child observation. Now, this is focusing on student social workers being enabled to develop the the sensitivities that they need uh, for later roles in practice through conducting baby and young child observations. I mean, it's a fascinating subject and it was a fascinating session that they did and I hope that their interview with me reflects that as well. Uh, a 12-week observation of baby or young child is the vehicle for this learning and the mechanics of setting up the observation is discussed as well, as well as the value, of course, of it. So that is our very first interview. The second interview I'm going to do is with David McKendrick. Now... David was looking at mixed methods evaluation of a national Twitter chat and it was really designed to encourage connectivity and professional identity in new social work students beginning their studies in the latest group to actually start their social work education. And that was really fascinating too. I mean, David um, is very well known uh, and very active on the social media circuit as well. So, thirdly... I have an interview with John Dow. Now, John's a service user, and it was a fascinating interview. A very articulate man who was looking very closely at what service user questions there are. So is there something missing, for example, was this kind of thesis behind it? Where is the evaluation and the communication of these new partnerships in the delivery of social services? I mean, something that people go on about an awful lot. And John was kind of drilling down, looking at the, if the effect of that and the actuality of it, um, if you like, in places of work. So that was with John. So here's the first one then. This uh, is the interview looking at uh, young child observation. Claire Parkinson is a senior lecturer at the University of East London. Lucille Allen is the director of the social work programmes at Middlesex University. And Helen Hingley-Jones is a senior lecturer also at Middlesex. Here's their interview. Oh, they're right. Well, I'm now with three women who made an excellent presentation today at one of the sessions on exploring contemporary uses of baby and young child observation. And uh, Claire Parkinson 
Lucilla Lane and Helen Hingley Jones here, and they're going to mention which universities they're from as they introduce themselves. So maybe let's start. Helen, hello. Hi, Welcome. hi, Helen here. Yes, I'm. I work currently at Middlesex University. Okay, thanks. And um, yourself, Lucille. Lucille Allen from Middlesex University. Okay, and Claire. Yes, um, from the University of East London and the Tavistock currently. Okay, thanks. Well, very well, warm, warm welcome to you. Thanks for coming along. Now, your session looked, as I said, at observation. That was a key word that went through it, and what how you sort of work with students on this. But also, really, the bottom line was getting the student ready for practice, wasn't it? So let's start. I don't care who, I don't care which one of you, but all of you. Helen, come on. Which, what would you like to say? What was the theme? What, what were you trying to get, get over to people in the session today? Yeah, um, I think uh, we were wanting to um, explain something about the observation that our students are offered, that they do in the beginning of their experience on the qualifying programme, so an undergraduate programme and on the MA programme. So they have an opportunity to do a 12-week observation um, which they, um, they go into a family's home or into a nursery setting and do an observation with a child under five years of age. Um, so we see it very much in um, the kind of early stages of their social work education. It's an opportunity for them to develop a range of skills associated with making the observation in a kind of preparation for that first placement. Thank you, Lucille. Yes, um, as Eileen Monroe said, it's really important that social workers have the skills to get through the front door and um, are able to make a relationship with service users. So we see this approach to teaching um, as a way of helping students develop observational skills to um, engage um, being an observer of a child in a family or a nursery setting and then they can build on that for the rest of their social work training. So um, the skills that they learn as, as part of that in the seminar and um, discussing their experiences with other students helps them to um, develop their confidence around writing and um, articulating what they've observed and how that links to theory and that's very important for the building blocks for their two subsequent placements. Okay. Okay, just for the moment, that you're clear. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we think the students get from um, taking up and sustaining the um, role of observer is really exactly that, that they're um, having to stick to a certain sort of brief and stay within certain sort of principles and guidelines and um, not be too diverted from other things that might be going on in the family home or not be too diverted from a mother who wants to chat with them or if they're in a nursery setting, you know, to retain their focus on the child and not be, um, you know, uh, discouraged from doing that by all the usual kind of hubbub in a nursery setting. So there's something just about being able to arrive at a um, particular venue that they've negotiated for themselves and take up a role and sustain it for one hour and then write it up and share their um, experience with peers and their tutors afterwards, which we think is really good um, yeah, preparation for um, when they then have to go out on placement and do all sorts of things that are required of them in a professional capacity. So it's... it's, it's keeping focused, keeping a professional distance, 
but at the same time obviously not alienating anybody else that they're there. You talked, one of you I remember in your session, um, it was about understanding infantile behaviour I think was the phrase that you used. Yeah. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Yes, um, we, at that moment actually I think we were quoting from Esther Bick who was writing in 1964 about the value of um, baby observation. Esther Bick was the person at the Tavistock who um, pioneered the first baby observation as a means of teaching child psychotherapists about how babies grow and develop and what she said was that um, it um, that it it that observing is intended to help the student to conceive vividly the infantile experience of the child but also to help them understand the child's non-verbal behavior and play as well as the behavior of child who neither speaks nor plays okay well I remember I mean perhaps Lucille or Helen can answer this one, but I mean, I remember I, I, in the session I was mentioning, I, I wonder uh, what your thinking was about pre-birth, about uh, the child in the womb, and the effect that um, some of the horrific things that can go on, whether it's domestic violence, substance abuse, mental health troubles within the mother, or, or done to, to the mother, can affect the child because essentially these first two years, which is what you were focusing on to a large extent, are absolutely crucial in, in, in determining the entire childhood. Is that context of, of pre-birth something that you would see as, as an important one to actually steer your students to look at as well as the under five? Yeah, Helen here. Um, it very much is. I mean, as part of any qualifying programme, it's vital for students to understand the impact of substance misuse and other issues that might be affecting a parent during pregnancy and before. Um, but I guess what we're particularly keen for students to do is to have an opportunity to observe, if you like, what we call an ordinary child. So, you know, so much of the time if students are, or social workers are having to give evidence in court or prepare reports and assessments, they're kind of benchmarking the child that they're assessing in relation to you know, what's thought of as a kind of ordinary child, ordinary development. So, but if you think about it, actually there aren't that many opportunities for social workers out on placement to visit ordinary families because we're working with... You know, families where catch twenty two, isn't it? Yeah, so it's, if you like, it's a kind of prototype. It's an opportunity to do something that's not plate. It's not being on placement. It's a kind of plate. It's a space where students can just take time to you know, to observe, to sit back, reflect, process, think about what child development's about. To because a lot of a lot of students come onto courses actually not having spent much time with young children. They may not be, a lot of them aren't parents, they may not have had much younger siblings. Um, you know, and in, in the current world, it's not no, that I, unusual, is it, totally to not understand. have much contact with children. So it's that kind of ordinary, we don't, you know, not baseline, because no child is ordinary, it's a sort of silly term in a way, but it's, you know, an uncomplicated situation where you're kind of seeking for them to learn from. we we'll talk about the, some of the key points you were making in a minute, but I thought just to complete this trio of, of questions, ask Lucille something here. Yeah. I mean, as social work educators, you're all very well aware, I suspect, everybody has maybe different titles, but from my point of view, two of the basic issues to do with social work are assumptions and values. And so, in other words, teaching people about not to make assumptions might seem easy, but it's not, is it? And no. also, what values, what luggage you bring 
to the to the to the job from your own life, whether it's an ordinary life or, or not. You still bring a lot of luggage to it, and that has got a huge influence on what you see in front of your eyes when you are observing. And I'm wondering if, if you would agree about folding some of that thinking into what you're teaching. Um, Lucille here, that's a very um, important and interesting question and it's central to the um, discussion we have in seminars with students after the observation and that links to students reflecting on themselves and what they bring from their own life experiences, their assessments and judgments and views around what might be happening for the, the baby or the child that they're observing and others' views in the seminar group and um, is, a, a, is a, 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 an important space for exploring difference and diversity, whether in terms of culture, family, structure, different ways of parenting, in a way that students um, can sort of feel free to discuss these things before they go out on their first placement and explore some of these sort of different ideas. So we think it provides a very good forum for that. Okay. We did collect this data that um, you heard about in the workshop from our students and um, I'm just looking from my notes at one of our students. So this is a first year, first term um, BA student and um, she says about what she learned from doing the observation, I learned that my own emotions, life experiences and thoughts affect my observations and others may see it differently. So something about the seminar, you know, she's already seen. No, exactly. I mean, terrific. Okay, well, I mean, that, that fits. I um, noted, I think it was five or six key points you made towards the end that you wanted people to go away with, if you like. And I, I've forgotten that. Have you observed before? This is what you talk to the students on. Have you observed before? What were your expectations before? Uh, is it easy or is it difficult in your view to observe? I mean, you're looking at the student evaluation here, aren't you? So, I mean, then key learning points and reflective experience of, of, of um, the seminar in the seminar, which you just mentioned there, because as we all well know, reflective practice is not the most. Um, well done thing when you get into practice uh, in the actual work itself. How do you how do you feel about that and the various? If you just say something about some of the key points that you were making there as a sort of summing up of your session. Oh. Yeah, well, we it's Helen here. Um, we when we looked at that the evaluation, you mentioned some of the questions that we asked students at the end of their, um, their module when they were studying doing their child observations. Um, and we came up with a uh, kind of thematic analysis from their, um, their answers to those questions and the idea of there being kind of emergent typology for teaching child observation. So those, those themes that came out of that were around um, looking at uh, being able to recognise ordinary child development and the diversity contained within it. So we had some very kind of experience-based learning that students could recount about their, you know, what they, what they experienced in a child's development in that 12-week observation. And the, the, one of the, the second theme we came up with was looking at the idea of use of self. So, you know, it's very much a, an arena for students to develop their skills for practice. So, you know, taking the space to observe, those things are so key to assessment, aren't they? 
and then finally something about the theme about taking up and sustaining a professional role. So they're not just visiting a family once and seeing a child once, they're actually having to sustain this role over a 12-week period, which can be quite difficult sometimes. So there are kind of messages, I think, that um, cross into many different areas of learning for social work practice, and not, not just, I mean, it's about readiness for practice and readiness for going on that first placement. But we like to think that some of the skills they're learning while doing the observation are things they'll take with them throughout their session. Okay, quick couple of, a quick few words from Lucille and a quick few words from Hel, uh, from Claire, and then I've got one final question for you all. All right, okay. so Lucille. Yeah, um, uh, just follow, yes, Lucille here. Just following on from um, Helen's points, um, and sort of encouraging students to think about observation as being a, a skill that will remain with them throughout their social work training. Um, because we know from series case reviews into adult and child safeguarding that the skills of observation and social workers being encouraged to really see and report what has been going on has been neglected and that has been an enduring theme. So it's something that we um, really believe is important for practice. Right. Thank you. Apart from the Morris dancers in the background, I think they're all right. (laughs) So this is Claire, that um, I guess one key thing that we hope that that will stay with the students is that what they've learned from their observation is um, something that they've learned from their own direct experience. Mm. And the students' enthusiasm for that kind of learning really, we think, is something that um, they remember because they tell us about it by the end of the third year degree course, for example, and at the end of the master's course and we think that the likelihood of them being demanding better supervision for example once they're back into once they're into a practice situation is likely to is more likely if they've had um, if they've had this experience of actually being being able to reflect when they're when they're qualifying and a whole dose of assertiveness training I hope (laughs) yes but all right final question Um, Alan Woods president of the uh, Association of of, uh, Directors of Children's Services was talking about uh, a lot of social workers not being fit for practice, being turned out from from universities. A crap, I think, was the word he used. Is he right? Discuss. (laughs) Lucille here. I don't think he is right. Um, We see our social workers at Middlesex University returning for further training as newly qualified social workers doing post-qualifying programs and this is a feature of all universities and we're very proud of the way they've flourished in practice, the way they've supervised and mentored other students and and I also um, do external work sitting on a, a fostering and adoption panel and I see excellent practice there so I don't think that is correct. I mean, he, he certainly caused a lot of controversy, didn't he? He did cause a lot of controversy, yeah. but that's his favourite thing. Yeah, yeah. Claire, what do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I think we listen closely to what our employers and we, as um, social work education providers, and we work closely with. And, you know, they would tell us, <laughs> definitely would tell us, if they didn't think that the um, students that we train as um, qualified practitioners were fit for practice. And that's not the message that we're getting. They're delighted with our students. They employ them. Mm. They offer those who are on their final placements to stay in statutory settings and so on. I think he's mel- it was rather melodramatic, wasn't it, the mm. whole thing? I mean, I... I, I for my sins in the old days with CWDC, if you remember that. Oh, yeah. I used to be their support advisor for the southwest of England for the 15 authorities on the NQSW programme. Yeah. 
And there were some social workers that weren't fit for practice, but that was understood. It's just like any profession, mm. you know. It's like this is kind of multiplying it up, it seemed, in the public mind. All right, Helen, final word. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, we see many very um, competent social workers leaving and graduating from our courses every year. And I think, you know, it's so important to think about it as, yeah, we're preparing them, hopefully making them ready for their first placement, supporting them through their learning, getting them ready to graduate but it's a continuing process they need to carry on being supported carry on attending um, training and opportunities and they need good supervision on, on site as well you're so all optimistic are you about um, the students you're seeing definitely yeah, yeah? absolutely yeah. well look to the three of you many many thanks for talking to me it was a very good session today and i well i hope you enjoy the rest of the conference thanks for joining us thank you very much thank you, thank you. Right. Well, the second interview is with David McKendrick. Now, David's a lecturer in social work at Glasgow Caledonian University. And he's the one that I was talking to quite a bit about social media. He's very active on social media, as David, and has got some very firm and fixed views. And it's a great interview. So, David McKendrick. OK, I'm joined now by David McKendrick. David is a lecturer in social work at Glasgow Caledonian University and has been presenting a session here at JSWEC. And I'm going to read it out here because it's quite a decent set. It's a mixed methods evaluation of a national Twitter chat. And we'll get to the Twitter handle in a minute. Designed to encourage connectivity and professional identity in new social work students who are beginning their studies in 2013-14. Very much welcome to the programme, David. Thank you very much, David. Your session's been, but do you want to just say a little bit about why and how it came about and how you felt it went? Yeah, um, well, once you get over the initial presenter anxiety, any session's always the best part. That first few moments of, first of all, you don't believe anybody's going to come. Yeah. Yeah. Then secondly, you believe that everybody's going to come is going to be far cleverer than you, and not much more about your topic. Yeah. And then you finally believe that you're going to end up looking like a bit of a clown at it because they know so much more. Once you get over those initial hurdles, and you get into your side and it goes well. I think um, the, the, the Twitter chat, I came up with an initial idea for it and I started it and I curated it and I then evaluated it. So you feel a certain confidence in your material because mm -hmm. it does kind of belong to you. Um, we had round about 20 people at it. That was, I, I looked in, it was quite a well attended session given the number that are on. Yeah. And, and the three presentations in the morning session were all about social media and its use. So I think it attracts people because social media seems to be something that's on their eyes um, and it seems to be something that's catching people's imagination as, as a useful way of, of engaging and communicating with people. So in that sense you're always hopeful that you're going to get a crowd and I was very pleased to get it and we had some really interesting conversations and discussions about afterwards as well. There was, there was a lively discussion yep. you managed to have. Okay, the Twitter handle, by the way, is at Swinduction. Yeah. Okay, S-W-I-N-D-U-C-T-I-O-N. Well, in my job as a lecturer in social work at Glasgow Caledonian University, we, um, we spent a lot of time looking at and thinking about the idea of induction for students coming into first year. And actually, we've We've more arrived at a view about induction should better be seen as some form of transition. Um, and it's about how you support people in that transition in the early stages. 
and how you get people to feel welcome, feel a part of somewhere, and feel a commitment to somewhere. So we did a lot of that work internally within the university, but I had this idea about there's a whole load of social work students that and a whole load of universities all over the place. And they're all got the same aim to get a social work qualification. And they're all going to be taught on broadly similar programmes and broadly similar kind of inputs. So the, the, the bit about professional identity was, you know, you're not alone. You're not just in a class of 40, 50, 60 in your institution. But you're part of a cohort of maybe a couple of thousand people who's coming in. And actually, if you can share some of your concerns and you see them mirrored in somebody in Birmingham or London or Aberdeen, that might support that transition process for you. So that was the real kind of driver behind it to get people involved in it. And I think to get people into the idea about social media as a kind of connecting tool. Well, it's a vast subject now. I yeah. mean, it's growing exponentially every day, you would, I'm sure, agree. And all the issues to do with your own privacy on yeah. social media the ethical side of it, as well as, I mean, I'm, I must admit, um, I was part of a kind of group looking at should social workers effectively, um, well, spy, that's a better word, on service users that were considered to be at risk or whether a child was at risk in the house, like maybe Tracy Connolly, baby Peter's mother, who was on social media all the time and people didn't know or didn't recognise that and could have done and so social work departments all over the country well the UK now are considering what level of um, permission they will give to their people to look at people's social, social media, media. Um, I don't know what you, you think well, about I mean, that I think the first thing about it is that social media Facebook Twitter it's volitional it's your own choice to use it but you then get into a question about how informed is that choice and when we're working with service users and social work we have to recognise that there's certain particular vulnerabilities about people. And I think we need to be very cautious that we are not accessing any form of information about people without having some form of consent from them to do so. And I think it's about being very clear with people about why you're doing it. But mm. interestingly, um, in Scotland, a lot of legal practices um, are starting their own Twitter and their own Facebook account. Because when people weren't turning up for court, sheriffs in Scotland were saying, have you checked their Facebook? Have you checked their Twitter account to see where they are? Interesting. So um, a lot of legal practices now have Facebook or Twitter accounts and they follow clients of that practice on that and they communicate with them through Facebook and Twitter. I don't know whether it's successful no, or not. No, no, but it, but but it just shows you the new, the new frontier, if you like. It does, and I think if you've got sheriffs who are saying that, who are perhaps traditionally okay. more conservative with a small C than social workers, and it does tell you yeah. how it's going. Another aspect though is you get a lot of social workers, and I know this, as well as teachers, as well as whoever, other professionals, who are not privatising or making private their own Facebook page or yeah. whatever, and other people who have got other agendas take their information and are publishing hate sites, and it's really bringing it home how important it is to keep private your own information. Well, I think, I think it's important to keep private your own information. But if you choose not to keep that private, you need to be aware of the possible repercussions for you. So you have to be yeah. really about your own informed choice. Social media doesn't exist in a vacuum. No, no. You know, and, and you should not think that because you're a social worker or a teacher or a lawyer, that people won't search for you on social media. No, no. And I think will. that's a very good point, well made for people listening. Yeah. As a, as a sort of final point for just now, but I mean, 
the, the work that you put into this presentation today and what you've been thinking through, where's it going? Well, it's going to be another social work induction um, in September time. And it seems to be like all these small social media startups, it seems to be getting a bit more kind of um, momentum going because uh, the Guardian Social Care Network's asked me to write something up about okay, it. Okay. And Baswa, who were at the presentation, have also asked if it would be okay for them to publicise yeah, it. Yeah, great. So, it, 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 it's a frantic hour when you're curating it, David, because things are coming in thick and fast. But, like anything new, if you start it yourself and it works out, there's a great feeling of achievement. Yeah. And I think sometimes in social work, we don't often get that great feeling of achievement. So if you can find a vehicle to help you to yeah, feel better yeah. about it, then I think we should... We should and to use it. your own words, you chose to ride the pony. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Sometimes I scratch my head and wonder why, but I did it anyway. David McKendrick, thank you very much indeed for joining much, us. That's lovely. Thanks Cheers. very much and good Cheers. luck. I'll see you around. All right, thanks David. Well, now, the third and final interview is with John Dow. Now, John to my mind, epitomises what a good, articulate service user with a great conscience and a terrific um, repertoire of ideas and imagination can do to actually assist people in our world. So, without any further ado, I commend this interview with John Dow to you. John Dow with us today. Uh, John's from the University of Dundee and he's looking at things from a service user perspective and his session actually was billed as a service user asks, is there something missing? Where's the evaluation and communication of new partnerships in the delivery of social services? Well, welcome John. Thanks. Welcome to the programme. So, how did it go? But firstly, maybe you might like to explain to the listeners what the actual session was and what, why you framed it in that way. Yep. For many years, I've felt that we have progressively moved the involvement agenda forward. So we're, we are, we've moved away from the tokenism. But one of the elements I felt that was missing was how do we as individuals that require the services, how are we seen when it comes to evaluating those services? And in much the same way, the communication element of the partnership came about because it's fine for me to say, I am aware of these changes, I can see the benefit of these changes, but that perception of being able to reflect on that and feel part of it isn't across the board, it's very patchwork. So, I've always been aware of the value of reflection from service users. I've always, because otherwise you don't grow and you don't, do, you don't develop and you don't uh, improve your, your service. What I'm wondering what you're thinking is on this is there are some service users, I suspect, that might not wish to participate in any great, greater depth, how much responsibility do you think is on the role of those working with service users to persuade them to do so because of the value it would bring? I think it's, it's important that we begin to see real equal opportunity 
which is different to the platitude of we're all equal partners. But if we can see equal opportunity of involvement and then moving that forward through evaluation processes, we then see real influence from that involvement, then we would be another five or six years further forward than we currently have lost ten years. So you're really talking about transparent choice. Yeah. And what's important is it's just as important for the professionals, the leaders of these changes, and me as a service user and carer, to say and to listen to the comment that as another service user I don't want to be involved. That's important because then it enables me, as far as I can respectfully, tease out is there a reason you don't want to be involved? Is it because we're not supporting you? Is it because you've had a bad experience of involvement? Rather than just, oh, they don't want to be involved, so we won't bother asking them. Yeah. I, I mean, there's no argument from me. In fact, there's every bit of positive thinking on the value of involvement of service users. But it's just like I said, you know, their feedback effectively creates new work and creates improvement. It's just that the world that we live in is so full of people asking us for feedback. The world that we live in, whether it's shops or telephone companies or, or anybody in the street or everything, what was, it, what was that like for you? How was this service? Please fill in this form. Please do this survey. Please do that. That Sometimes service users, I, I, I'm fairly sure, get con not confused, but get just think, oh, it's another one of these things. Yeah. The, there was a sense at one time that service users and carers were, to quote, um, over-consulted. Now, the feeling of, I am, we are, over-consulted wasn't because of the amount of physical consultations, but was as a direct result, in my opinion and others that I meet with, it was a result of having been consulted we were then left out from the next step. Yes, that's just what I, yeah. Because what I was driving at, I, I take your point, because what, what I was driving at in a sense was maybe in addition to what you're saying, there needs to be more of a drive to get people, as you are at the university, into positions of influence, where instead of just being asked to fill a form in or take part in a group or something like that, they can actually be part of a creative process uh, in terms of um, consultation and in terms of um, innovation. W would and, that be fair? Yeah, and we have to identify the, the need amongst some very knowledgeable service users and carers that they sometimes may need initial support to meaningfully be involved in consultation. And if I can give you a, a very brief example, a number of years ago, because I was unable to attend an international conference in Ottawa, I asked a member of our group if he would go. And his first response was, no, I, I didn't think so because I can't do it the way you do it. And I had to say to him, I'm not asking you to do it the way I do it. I want you to be you because you have an important story to tell. And it's this 
getting them to recognise that they are, they are all part of the jigsaw. They are indeed, and I, I also wonder what you're thinking would be, there are also, we must accept, presumably different categories of service users, if we want to put it that way. Because, for example, where I used to practice, what, what, what my area what it used to be, there's a lot to do with child protection. And obviously, the young people that we worked with, um, who were, in my view, stupidly always classified as victims, essentially, rather than whatever, were service users. And of course, the last thing they want to do is participate in something that keeps reminding them of why they're there in the first place. Yeah. Um, so, presumably, you would agree, we have to be clear about what groups of service users we should be trying to bring more into the fold and what others we need to be a bit more sensitive about. Yeah, and it's that sense of, do we want to simply have individuals who feel strong enough to gird on the armour and do battle, come hell or high water, they're just going to disagree? Because they're often the ones that are the only ones that are heard. Or do we want to be more realistic and say each of us has that individual and therefore important collective story and how we, how we tease that out, how we support and gently move them into that. And I think if we, if we look at children in particular, I was at a very interesting paper yesterday um, and it was on the Belgian model of supporting children in care that not so much in care but needed child's, uh, children's services and they have this model where the child climbs up this toy puts a written message into the heart of the toy and it drops all the way down and, and that's a secret if they want to keep it secret it's kept secret but it helps them to feel they can tackle hurtful, painful, reflective issues. Um, Discharging their anxiety. Yeah. And I think we need to reach a point of saying, when you feel comfortable to share your story with us, I will be willing to listen to it. Um, rather than having the expectation that because Westminster... Scottish Parliament or whoever want to do a consultation we should all spring up and say I'm dead keen to be part of that we might not be dead keen for various personal reasons Okay, point taken what about um, what about the growth of carers forums uh, where well let's just say people like yourself who have been involved in advocacy for quite some time now can, can address um groups of carers, uh, hopefully empowering them, but at the same time educating them um, about the kind of the world that they might well be uh, called on to advise. Um, I've found that the model that we have fallen into, rather than deliberate design, so far as the carer and user groups concerned within Dundee, where we have a respectful forum so if an individual is a carer, and that's their main responsibility, their views, their needs, their voice, aren't reduced 
because we're talking about a service user issue. We ask them to say, from a carer's perspective, how important is that, or would you tackle it differently? I know organisations that will have only service users at a meeting to discuss issues, and then they'll have another meeting where it's only carers to discuss issues, and never the twain shall meet. And I personally feel that that is diluting. Surely some are both. Yes, but it dilutes. What they ask for is, are you a mental health service user? Yes. So that's the perspective we want to hear about. It's like somebody going to the going to the gym one day and to the cinema the next. Yeah. They're still the same person. Yeah. Okay. Given the fact that there will be people listening to this who, who may well be indeed be carers and may well indeed be service users or may well indeed be both, but at the same time may well indeed be people working with service mm. users, carers, whatever. You've just advocated something there, and I can see that it's an idea, the one you work with in Dundee, that you feel is good and it's working, and you know, why change it? Is it a universal model you could adv- advocate in terms of actually how people could go about Because it's so patchy, in my view. Yeah, I mean... Is we, that fair? Yeah. Within the model that we developed, and as I say, fell into and then enriched, we began with the core values, such as we will all be respectful of each other's views. We might not agree with them, but we will produce space where we can be not only heard but listened to, and we'll each have an equal opportunity to be listened to. Are you available to go to the Middle East? (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> no, I think Tony Blair's already doing that. Oh, well, he's got the title yeah. in it. No, I didn't mean to be facetious, but I mean. Yeah, it, it's about. I am more than my identity of mental health, health, and social service user. I, am, I have various elements, and I have to acknowledge that when someone's coming from a carer's perspective of saying, I wouldn't let this particular professional in because my own experience of supporting my son or my daughter or whoever was completely negative, then I have to first and foremost acknowledge that that is a painful truth, but then try and tap into what others have said, that I have the ability then to say, how can I help you move forward from that position? Now, that may take a long time, it may never happen, but there should always be the opportunity to help them move forward from that position. No, no, and no, I take your point very seriously. Listen, um, what I like to do with guests on, on the programme is, as a sort of final thing, ask you, invite you to give a message to carers, service users and those who work with these, these groups. Um, as to what they should consider, what they should think about, that would begin to get them to the place that you're in yourself now. So, would you like to offer a message? Yeah. If I have one message, is that we need to stop simply saying we're all in this together, and we need to demonstrate that I will respect your view as a professional or a politician or a senior manager 
as I will respect the views of other service users and carers. I need us collectively to reflect on what happened yesterday in the context of today so that we can look from today to designing and evaluating the services we feel collectively we're going to need tomorrow. Don't let's wait until there's a crisis. That would be, if I was able, and anybody was wanting to let, that would be the message I would put across. Well, they are listening, and I hope they do take it. John Dow, it's been a pleasure having you on the programme. Thank, Thank you. you very much indeed. Thank you. Well, there we are. Another batch from a fantastic conference, the uh, Joint Social Work Education Conference at the Royal Holloway, University of London. Now, there'll be another podcast, uh, if you like, a, a, a normal podcast, if you like, one depending on the issues of the week, depending on what takes my fancy. I really appreciate you listening. Uh, as always, please keep that feedback coming and uh, take care of yourselves. Till next time. Thank you. <laughs>